The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 44 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Growing up in California, I lived through plenty of earthquakes in the 90s, but I had no clue about the Valiant Comics' birthquake. I'm Adam. And realizing that Gen 13 sounds like a vitamin supplement I should have been taking every morning to keep my youthful good looks and not let my hair fall out of my head before I'm 40, I'm Michael. <laughs> and uh, Steven couldn't join us this episode because he was abducted by aliens? Oh, no. No, no, let me, he's putting the finishing touches on his UFO Club movie. Oh, yes. The UFO Club is officially the arch nemesis now of the Wizards <laughs> the podcast guide to comics. Uh, but hopefully he'll be back down to Earth sometime in the near future. Now, Michael, as we get started here, I got to tell you that uh, the in the editorial here from Editor-in-Chief Pat McCallum of Wizard Magazine, he is welcoming Joe Yanarella on as managing editor. And if you've listened to the Wizard Files, you'll recognize that name as the man who hired on nearly every staff member from this point forward. And he worked at the Wizard offices for over a decade, even though he was admittedly not a comic book fan. Uh, it actually, Pat says, take our new managing editor, Joe Yetterella. Joe comes on board with 10 years of editorial experience under his belt, and he's already working the young punk Wizard staff into a fine-tuned machine. You see, while the Wizard crew is creative and fast-working, we're all mostly a bunch of snot-nosed kids. And though we didn't realize it till he showed up we needed somebody who has joe's experience to help us streamline our crew and the mag and all the while his background shines through creatively which you'll definitely notice in the coming months so a hearty welcome to super joe now we've reached out to joe and he declined to participate in the wizard files michael why do you think that might be he wants to close that chapter of his life maybe <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I think he just he just said, look, I'm not really a comic book guy, so I don't have anything to talk about. Although I did find he wrote an article on Sergeant Rock Comics in a later issue. So they got him to do at least one piece. And he did appear, you know, with his head stuck on a Miko doll a couple times. But yeah, I guess he's just not really super into that world. But Michael, I thought you might know that name. You know, maybe you ran into him on the bus somewhere in New York. Speaking of that, though, actually, funny enough, just yesterday I was walking around and i'm walking past somebody I'm like gee that guy looks familiar and i was like oh my god that's matt damon what? and i was like i was like five feet from matt damon and i looked at him and he looked at me and i kind of like gave him the, you know the little the cool like yo i, I know who you are dude nod and he kind of like grinned and like darted away i was like i saw matt damon wow matt damon <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic hey but you might know him because we've talked about it you love your sports talk radio and sports entertainment uh not the wrestling kind and mm. he is a big wig over at the bleacher report these days yeah, I don't follow the Bleacher Report all that much. I tend to lean heavy into the ESPN stuff. Okay. Fantasy football websites and, and social media platforms. Bleacher Report's all right. I don't want to badmouth it. I yeah. just don't 
I don't use That's it. That's not where you go for your information. Okay, good enough. Well, you know, one place that the fans of Wizard Magazine loved to go, though, was straight to the source. They wanted to talk to Jim McLaughlin, also a big sports guy himself. And so we're going to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. <laughs> So Jim McLaughlin actually starts out the Magic Words column by revealing that in a previous issue, a sweet little kid named Sammy wrote in to ask for Spider-Man's autograph. And so Wizard, figuring they didn't want to give him like a fake Spider-Man autograph, they actually sent him a Stan Lee autograph instead as the guy who created Spider-Man. But now a bunch of greedy imposters are trying to work the system and writing in pretending to be children that say they just want Spider-Man's autograph. I just want Pitt's autograph. I just want you know, in hopes of getting a signature from Stan the Man or some other great creator. And Jim McLaughlin's response is, cut it out. Okay. I mean, imagine that. You're just like, oh, that's a great in. Yeah. But I'm curious, you know, you just ran into Matt David, Michael. Did you ask him for an autograph? No, I would never. I would never. I, I, I have too much respect and I don't want to be that guy. Like, feels rude. Yeah. He was like, it was first thing in the morning. He was walking his kid to school. I'm like, I'm not going to be that guy. I just, I knew who he was. I acknowledged him. And in, in New York City, it's very, very taboo to do that. Like, ah. if you see a celebrity, you don't, it's just very, yeah, they have their own lives. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, and I only ever do it like in official settings, you know? And so like for me, I like I, the first time I ever got an autograph though, as a kid was I went to this county fair. I mentioned it briefly last episode and it was this like legends of rock and roll. You had, you know, like Bobby Boris Pickett who sang the Monster Mash. You know, you had surviving members of the Tokens who sang the Lion Sleeps Tonight. Just it was kind of a ragtag group. But one of the people that mattered to me the most was Mickey Dolans of the Monkees, and he was there singing a couple of their hits. And so afterwards, they give you this booklet that you know all the stars that were appearing, and you could walk this table, and they would each sign it as you walked down the length of the table. And I got Mickey Dolans's autograph. Then Mm -hmm. I cherished it so much that I, we went on a family road trip that summer and I held on to it. I, t- I just looked at it every day. I just loved it so much because I, I watched the monkeys on uh, MTV at that time. They were doing reruns and I opened the window and I think my dad had the window open in the front so it created this draft and it sucked my autograph book out of the car and it flew out onto the California highway never to be seen again. That's a very Adam story. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it, 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 that, that feels right. That, It's a tragic moment in my childhood, but what are you going to do? Now, Michael, this is something I'm curious to know about because, you know, your family is in construction. You know about the materials that go into building things, what is the strongest, what isn't. And here in Magic Words, Kent wished he lived in another era. Davis of Harrodsburg, Kentucky asks, Dear Magic Words, I have a simple question about an age-old debate. In your opinion, what are the toughest, most indestructible comic book materials ever? I immediately think of the following weapons, Thor's hammer, the Silver Surfer's board, Captain America's shield, and Wolverine's former adamantium claws, or just plain old adamantium for that matter. So what do you think? Is there anything you would add to that list, Michael? I would say in DC Comics, you have the nth metal, like the from uh, okay. Hawkman's uh, mace. That's a pretty strong metal. There's, there's another element in, in DC Comics that uh, came out long after this. They, they, they just invented a 10th metal. 
Oh. Um, and that's where, like, DC's metal... That, that's what I was just going to say, is that have something to do with their metal line of comics, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. so, uh, but I, I would say Nth Metal's probably pretty big. You know, Mjolnir is probably the one that I think is the most indestructible other than Adamantium. Yeah, and so it's interesting you say that, because it says here in Jim McLaughlin's response, well, Thor's hammer, the sacred Mjolnir, is tougher than the average craftsman, but hardly indestructible. It cracked in a recent battle with the Destroyer in Thor number 476. The surfer's board and cap shields were taken apart at the molecular level by the appropriately named Molecule Man in Avengers number 215, but otherwise, they've proven to be rather sturdy. Adamantium is tougher than nails, but has been shown to be dented on a few occasions, one of those occasions, ironically, was by Thor's hammer. I'd have to say that the toughest materials in the comic world are in no particular order Doctor Doom's megalomania, Green Arrow's chili, Jim Shooter's haircut, and Todd McFarlane's ego. <laughs> I would also throw in there, uh, never mind, I'm not even going to go there. You're not going to go there, okay. I'll, I'll have to put a dollar in the jar. <laughs> Can't do it. All right. Well, this next one here, I'm wondering if you ever had this question. So this is part of the Ask the Wizard sidebar. And so we have a question here from Jay Bowman of McAndrews, Kentucky. A lot of questions from Kentucky, this issue. And he asks, why does it Gambit's gloves charge up when he charges other things up? Answer, well, if you look closely, you'll see that Gambit's gloves are actually cut by his thumb and index finger, so only his flesh touches whatever he charges up. Of course, another possible answer is that his gloves are made of living tissue, which, of course, he can't charge up at all. Ugh. <laughs> He's wearing other people's skin on his hands. Yeah. Ooh, it's dark, Gambit. <laughs> but I thought that was interesting. I never thought there was a purpose behind the fact that a few of his, you know, glove fingers were missing. Now, there it is. There is an explanation, possibly. I, I kind of figured that. Like, also... I mean, if you think about it this way, like a lot of times bowlers, for example, have you ever watched like a bowler, like a pro one who has about a bowler hat for a second? <laughs> no, no, like like a real bowler. Yeah. Um, they sometimes they wear a particular glove where just the fingers that go into the holes of a ball are out, and the ones that are not are usually covered so that the ball will slide easier, and the other fingers don't mess up the throw. That begs the question. You know, I feel like X Men in their comics they've been known to like they go to the mall, they have a barbecue. You know, they go to the beach, they do stuff like that. Have they ever gone bowling? I'm sure that would be like a bottle issue. <laughs> well, but at this age, it seems so obvious, right? Because, you know, what happens when you get a strike? It's a big X on the screen, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's it's all worked in. It's calling to them. It seems to flow perfectly into their story. <laughs> But seeming to flow perfectly, Michael, is the name of the game when we want to get the top headlines. So why don't you take us into... <laughs> Wizard News. <laughs> I love how you provide it every episode. I've, I've been very into this, like, old-timey, like, ladies and gentlemen, on the radio here, we're, we're here for <laughs> marching our boys to war. <laughs> I don't know, for some reason it's been sort of a thing lately. So, our top story this issue is the news that Marvel has bought out another company, pushing themselves closer to bankruptcy eventually, I feel like. This time is the comic book distributor Heroes World. This comes after purchasing the trading card company Fleer and Malibu Comics in 1994. This is leading to speculation from other comic book professionals about what Marvel's yet un revealed plans are with this acquisition. Larry Martyr of Image Comics speculates, I think Marvel is saying the direct sales market is a level playing field 
And quite frankly, we think a level playing field is unfair to Marvel. They'd like everything to slant their way. Yeah, so it's very interesting here, right? Marvel's just like, hey, you know, we're buying out other companies, we're buying out distributors. I mean, they are just going all the way. And of course, DC just did that recently. How's that working out for them? Very poorly. Really? (laughs) Oh, man. I'm going to make this announcement, and this is a bold, bold announcement. I decided, come 2022, to stop buying comics. (gasps) No! I'm done, at least for a year. Because, A, I have so many issues of stuff that I haven't yet read that I could probably spend the rest of my life trying to catch up. And, B, the stories are bad. They're recycled. They're not good and they're not enjoyable. I'm going to wait until I finish the Tom King, Batman, Catwoman, and and Batman 89, which I don't even really like that very much. It's kind of boring, if you ask me. I will say, but I've been reading Batman 89 as well. It's a little slow. They're kind of, yeah, they're stretching it out as much as they can. And I'm like, it's a six-issue thing. Like, come on. What's left? Yeah, what's going to happen? <laughs> I mean, they just announced a, a DC versus vampires thing. And I was like, oh, I'm interested in that. Then I found out that it's a 12-issue arc. I'm like, I'll wait for the trade. I don't need to yeah. go. It's too much, too long. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of done. And, and DC really bummed me out this year. I haven't bought a Marvel comic in quite a while. I've been I've been leaning into, like, the independent stuff lately. Uh, I've been checking out this Boom Comics book called Eat the Rich. Really cool, really cool book. You I have like to that listen lot. to the Aerosmith song on a loop while you're reading those comics. It kind of feels like that. It's it's cool, but it's a really good story. I, I highly recommend it. In other Marvel news, the House of Ideas is eliminating a number of slower-moving, less profitable titles, and as a result, will be reducing some positions in editorial and related departments. Uh-oh. The writing is on the wall. <laughs> Wizard actually lists the names of all the people announced that are being laid off and reports that 30 titles are expected to be canceled. Okay. It just just tells you how much excess Marvel kind of had at that point. They were just like, they had so many titles. We can cut 30 and we'll still be selling enough to make our money. I mean, that's nuts. I don't know how often you go to the comic shop anymore, but there are so many Marvel books that come out every week. And on top of that, so many variant covers. If the 2020s could be anything, it would be the era of the variant cover because there's like 10 variants of so many books and so many vendors i'm like this is insane it's ridiculous and and some are valued at like 30 dollars because they're like a little bit rarer or whatever Mm. if the gimmicks were the 90s the variants are the 2020s apparently an unnamed creator announces that he is creating a new female heroine for his maximum press line named evangeline who is based on the model Kathy Christian that used to be the official Vampirella model for Harris Comics. That's interesting. And also happens to be engaged to image publisher Tony Libido. In addition to modeling for cover photos, Christian will also be making appearances in character at conventions to promote the book. Wizard states Evangeline will be compared to the other comic book bad girls, and they stress that Evangeline will break the mold. (laughs) One thing's for sure, she has a gigantic sword. She could break anything with that. Do you remember seeing this comic at all, Michael, back in the day? Not a clue. No, nothing. Okay. We've talked 
talked about the bad girls and it was like you know vampirella lady death she leading the charge but from this point forward for the next three or four years the explosion of scantily clad female heroines is crazy and it's just getting started here even speaking of that do you ever remember a character named jennifer blood no not at all what was that one it was a jimmy palmiotti character oh i just remember painkiller jane from him yeah no this is this is a character called jennifer blood and they just brought it back i picked up the first issue the covers are beautiful i haven't read it yet but like it just looked really cool the art oh was really I, cool. I did i saw that on twitter and i thought it said jennifer's body i was like did they turn that megan fox movie That's into a comic book series yeah i was like wait a minute jennifer's body and i got close to, oh it's jennifer blood and then in fourth world comics you're like yeah it's, it's a it's a jimmy palmiotti character he created in the 90s and they're bringing it back i'm like oh okay i'll pick up the first issue see if it's cool because she's kind kind of a serial killer and i like serial killer stories so <laughs> i have a weird problem I'm, weird. I'm demented i don't know it was you know it the covers are great i don't i haven't read it though but stay tuned I'll, I'll let you know in further bad girl news lightning comics who had previously been publishing books that no one bought is about to get hotter than hell with their new female femme fatale helena uh, Okay. What is the femme fatales? Like, <laughs> femme fatale, baby! Oh my goodness. Alright. How are they going to steal the attention away from Lady Death and Vampirella? By offering the first ever nude variant. <laughs> oh, 90s, 90s, 90s. This is the issue that's going to get us cancelled. Tell me. <laughs> Oh, my God. You guys have to look this up on your own. We're not putting this one on social media. <laughs> no, please, no. According to the head of Lightning Comics, every kind of cover enhancement I can think of has already been done. When I looked originally at this cover, it was great, and then it popped into my head, wow, what if she was nude? <laughs> It was a spur-of-the-moment idea. Sounds like it. <laughs> oh, boy. To see this through a 2021 lens, I'm telling you, I don't know. And not content to offer just one busty, scantily-clad, female-led comic book, Lightning Comics also is releasing a new title called Catfight. <laughs> About a bad girl type character who is trapped in a nightmarish dimension. Funny enough, it is a book that I've been buying called Girl Fight, which is sort of like the CrossFit competition versus like sharks and stuff. It's what? Really I mean, wasn't that also the name of a Michelle Rodriguez film in the early 2000s? Yes, but this is a Frank Cho written and illustrated book, and it okay. is breathtaking. Like, it's breathtakingly beautiful. I think it's only the five issue arc, and it's through four issues. It's really good though it's pretty cool but holy cow cat fight oh boy all right <laughs> let's keep going oh my god i'm not gonna make it through the end of the episode it's it's about to get more wholesome i find that hard to believe <laughs> We haven't even gotten to the Gen 13 stuff yet. Yeah, that's so. true. Archie Comics announces that an Archie-themed restaurant is 7 to 10 months away and 11 months from closing. <laughs> <laughs> According to the new president of Archie Food Groups, that was a thing. <laughs> Wait. Apparently, Archie Food Corporation? I don't, I don't remember any Archie cereal. So no, yeah. Adam had a, has a special connection with this rumored restaurant, and he's going to tell us about it, so please... 
share with us another layer of the onion of Adam. Yes. So, as they report here, quote, It will expound upon the 53 years of history of Archie and his imagery, said Tom Askew, president of the Irvine, California-based company, Irvine, California, my hometown. Then it goes on to explain here, Askew, who owns a small chain of nostalgia-oriented restaurants in Southern California called Bebop Burgers. So, Bebop Burgers, Michael. I went there every other week for like two years straight with my dad that was our hangout spot it was a huge 50s style diner you know it had like 50s records all over the place they had a dj booth with mr bebop burgers who would spin the 45s over there the stacks of wax i have pictures of myself which i will post to social media which like my dad and i in like the front end of a corvette with a drive-in movie background or they had a fake wave and you could surf on a surfboard and take your picture like this was my place i loved it so much and when i found out here wait a minute bebop burger was gonna turn into potentially an archie themed restaurant that would have blown my mind as a kid like just walking in one day and be like jughead what <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's funny. That's pretty cool, though. I, I, we used to have a place similar to that. The problem is, like, in New York, they would do it all inside, and because you couldn't really enjoy it outside because it just was too cold or it would rain or whatever. But that sounds fun, though. Like, I, I love those kind of things where you're like, you're, like, sitting inside of a car, like, yeah, at a restaurant. Look at this. I'm in the front end of a car. It's cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just so much fun. And like I say, I, I have so much memorabilia that I bought from Bebop Burger over the years. I'm sure I went there for a birthday. I was just like, Dad, we got to go to Bebop Burger again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up, who are you going to call? The X-Men? A failed trend that did not catch on were interactive phone card games based on Marvel Comics, but Global Telecommunications Solutions is offering five different collectible phone cards that allow carriers to participate in a four-minute game with five levels of play available exclusively at KB Toy Stores and Hobby Stores. Well, it's not exclusively to KB if it's in Hobby Stores. Too. I know. I, I was kind of like, hmm, well, I guess those who choose to carry it, but KB specifically. <laughs> oh, I miss KB toys. Available battles include Wolverine versus Omega Red, Cyclops versus Mr. Sinister, Gambit versus Phalanx, and Storm versus Sentinel. According to GTS, thousands of $10 cards have been snatched up by fans and collectors. We're witnessing the evolution of the trading card. The evolution of the trading card, Michael! It's interactive, this trading card! Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember, there was this time, like, especially in the early 90s, just prior to this, that you would open up and they would have, like, a picture of the X-Men fighting, or the Avengers fighting, or somebody, and it would be on a grid and then it would have a phone number for you to call and then what you would do is you would type in the number for that grid space to make action happen on the phone call did you ever see those if i did i don't remember it anymore okay I, i'm sure our listeners know what i'm talking about i'll try to dig up a few and put them on, what on are the you talking Twitter. about i'm certain our listeners know more than i do <laughs> I'm certain of it. But I just think that's crazy that they're just like, yeah, $10 a piece for a trading card that's also a phone card. Seems like a pretty steep price to pay. But hey, what do I know? Finally, I'm thrilled to report that this issue contains an ad promoting a comic book crossover I've been waiting for all my life and never knew it existed. Oh, happy day. It's Turok Dinosaur Hunter meets Shaman's Tears in a three-issue <laughs> miniseries. 
series. It's so funny that this is, comes up because I was thinking about Shaman's Tears the other day. We got to you, Michael. We finally broke you. I, I feel like this would be something that some streaming platform would be like, this is a great name for a show. Let's option this 25-year-old comic that failed. It would be totally a TV show today, I feel like. Look for Shaman's Tears on Tubi in 2022. On Tubi. All right. Well, Michael, I think it's time that we check out our table of contents because on the cover of this issue, you made an allusion to it earlier. We have Gen 13. They've made it to the big time. So artist J. Scott Campbell has give us an iconic image of the three female members of the team, Fairchild, Freefall, and Rainmaker, posed for a model shoot, right? But then the cover is folded out and you find that their male teammates, Grudge and Burnout, are being denied access by a security guard employed by none other than Garib Shavis wearing a button that reads the big cheese alright so the fun thing about this Michael is in the big book of covers they mentioned that Campbell had come up with the idea of putting wizard big cheese Garib Shavis on the cover but Garib feeling the space was better served with comic book characters was hesitant after seeing the artwork and finding the whole wizard cover photo shoot idea clever Garib gave it the thumbs up but never put his image on a cover again <laughs> this is the one and only time you get Garib Sheamus on the cover of Wizard. Wow, that's surprising. Yeah. But, Michael, the fun fact is not only was this repackaged, I believe, in their Bad Girls issue, you got a pull-out poster of this, but this image was used as the cover of the first issue of Wizard in Brazil. And here is what the American editorial staff had to say about that in Wizard 100. We start showing full nudes. Well, at least the other Wizard does. See, thanks to the success of Wizard, the brand name is licensed out to a Brazilian printing house. They take the wizard name and style of reporting, translate old wizard features into Brazilian portuguese guys come on and add a smattering of new information most of which is accompanied by nude cartoon women picking objects off the floor all of which took the wizard bullpen by surprise we didn't know anything about it until we held a copy of their issue number two in our hands the suits never tell us anything so yes brazilian wizard showing off some nude imagery was helena in there was she a cover model in the nude version i don't know when i read this in the past i took it to mean that they didn't know know that the whole magazine was happening but obviously i've reread it now and it tells me this was an authorized licensing of the wizard name they just didn't know that there was going to be nude illustrations inside there which i've lived in brazil we've talked about this on the show very different standards and practices in their publishing and frankly in their television and entertainment industries but you have to ask yourself do we have the brazilian first issue of wizard of the archives Yes, we do. So we will share those side by side so you guys can take a look at that. But pretty fun. I actually had to call in a favor to a friend in Brazil. I found it <laughs> on an auction site down there. He bought it, had it shipped to him, and then he sent it out to me. So thank you, Eduardo, my rock and roll friend, as he is called. I have so many thoughts and feelings and... <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, like My children still have food on the table, Michael. I know that's what you're concerned about. <laughs> but are they going to have stories of, my mom and dad moved me to the mountains and in the snow, and I used to walk uphill both ways in the snow with one shoe on, because my dad needed a comic book from Brazil. <laughs> I don't know. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's what I do for this show, guys. We gotta have a complete archive, right? So that includes international issues. 
All right, but this cover story, Voices of a Generation, is all about Gen 13's new ongoing title, which is a follow-up to the massively popular miniseries from 1994. Campbell, along with writer Brandon Choi, state, quote, We're doing some pretty cool things that we weren't doing in the miniseries, so hopefully fans will like this just as much, if not more, than the miniseries. Why will it be so different, you guys might be wondering. Well, it says here, Jim Lee will be considerably less involved. Quote, I trust that implicitly in carrying through the original idea. They know the characters better than anyone. They'll do fine without me. In fact, Jim, in my opinion, they'll do much better. To me, like, the the miniseries was just a little too serious. It was a little too intense. It was a little too military. Kids railing against the establishment. It just, it wasn't as fun as it could have been. And Michael, you have not read the miniseries, right? I have not, no. <laughs> okay, but I did send Michael a copy of the first issue of Jed 13. Now, you know, I have stated in the past many times I was a super fan of Gen 13 as a teenager. It was one of the few series I bought every single month for over a year. I think Spider-Man 2099 was the only other one I was really dedicated to. So I have covered the miniseries, the half, the zero issues, but I wanted to get Michael's take you know, on this book, having never read any Gen 13. So I, I gave him that copy, and I have to ask before we get into it, what was your awareness or opinion of Gen 13 in the 90s? Oh, I I knew of them, and I, I read other stuff, like things that they were connected to at certain times, and I, I've known of the characters for a, a fair amount of time. I just, back then, I wasn't picking up things that were outside of Marvel and DC, and this is sort of at the cusp of when I stopped reading comics for a while. Like, once Batman was back and Superman was back, I kind of dropped off on comics completely by, I'd say, 94, 95, and I didn't pick it up again until after college, so a good 10 years or so. But I'll tell you, speaking of this issue number one of Gen 13, Adam gave me one homework assignment. It was, read the comic! (laughs) Well, listen, folks, I am opening the plastic for the first time right now. <laughs> okay. Time to read it. It's just how it goes. It's how it goes. So first impression live on the air right here, guys. I, I mean, I think the art is really, really stunning. It looks very cool. You can see the elements of the various artists that are involved in it. What I find interesting about the Gen 13 book is, yes, it is kind of like a X-Men adjacent in a lot of ways, but it has its sort of its own identity, too. And there's a lot more nudity than I would have thought as I'm turning to <laughs> Yeah, for some reason, they decided, because Sarah Rainmaker, as she was in the original comics, they said they were going to update her costume, give her a little bit different attitude, because she was kind of a nothing character. She was just like, yeah, I control the weather. But she wasn't super developed. And even in the other, you know, the half issue and the zero issue, it was just kind of like, yeah, she's around. But this one, yeah, she is definitely like the, the sex pot who is like tempting everybody. Oh, she's developed by now. Yeah. (laughs) And issue two, I will tell you, it's revealed, Michael, that she likes the boys and the girls. So that was just like, she's just for everybody. She's going to be the tease, it seems. That's also very progressive for for the 90s at this point, believe it or not. Like, like that's a a bold move and and way ahead of its time. You know, art, I think it's very cool. What I also kind of like about the first issue here is, as opposed to something like Youngblood, where they introduced you with no 
9 million characters to start. This book only introduced you to the five main characters right out the gate, which was similar to when we read the first couple of issues of like Harbinger. It only had the, the core characters in the beginning, and, and I think that's easier to digest than, here's everyone, we're just going to blow everything up immediately. And, and there's a little bit more, just by looking at it, a little more character development and more panels in the pages and, and more dialogue than explosions and, you know, as it gets further in, there's a lot more action going on, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's the thing, I think, to your point with the character development, because, yeah, it's not till page 17 that there is actually any fighting or any action. Everything else leading up to that is just the team hanging out in their house in San Diego. They're in La Jolla, you know, which is was not too far from where I grew up, just a little bit south. And, like, they're playing Mortal Kombat, which they call Mortal Conflict. <laughs> so they're playing a Super NES game system. They're just kind of hanging out at the pool. You know, uh, Freefall at one point just says, I want to go out to a club. So she's dancing. And there's kind of a mysterious guy there who hypnotizes her. You don't know why he's trying to seduce her. Meanwhile, there's this other group of mercenaries coming through a portal who say that they're looking for a Quelock. Only we don't know what a Quelock is. That comes a little bit later. Any, any guesses on that, Michael, as you're flipping through the pages? No, no, I don't know what a Quelock is. If you is. look carefully, you'll see a little green rat-like creature. And that, and that is a Quelock who becomes Freefall's pet throughout the series. And it has like teleportation oh, powers. It. Okay. Yeah. it keeps saying, queep, queep. Yep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but of all the designs of the character designs in here, whether it's the main team or the villains, who sticks out to you the most? I mean, Fairchild's the most well-flushed-out character, and even costume-wise, is, is by far the best, I think. Heads above the rest. But this other character that's kind of cool is this villain with the with the essentially it's like the claw hands or the spiky kind yeah. of hands that character's pretty cool looking his name is rake okay that's a pretty cool look what i really really like actually right after the issue this is like giant almost like poster style splash page of the, of the team together and with the character who's on fire what's his name burnout burnout his look is really cool too it's it's sort of johnny storm sort of uh pretty much all johnny storm <laughs> <laughs> he's he's the most derivative character, but then Rainmaker is just Storm. Yeah. From X-Men. Because, yeah, people just say Fairchild's She-Hulk, but it's just, it's the attitude of the characters that is so fun, and I don't know if it translates more to someone from California, because for me, it just, it's very familiar to me, you know, just the style and attitude, and that's what, you know, Campbell and Choi say. They're like, we decided to set it in San Diego because nobody else is doing that, and we could just look out our door and see what's going on and add that to the comic well they could also be like west coast avengers <laughs> uh, well that's what i realized is my whole life who was the california team that's who we got hawkeye yeah. and u.s agent and now we got a cool hip new team and i think that really was something people responded to the other thing i want to mention in the back here though is that they there is a gen 13 premiere party that took place at page after page in las vegas and so then we can actually go to a comic book store there and party with everybody and get your comic signed and everything like that so they were promoting it in the book itself it's like everybody come on down is this also when j scott campbell started going by j scott campbell because he used to go by something else prior to that yeah so he he was originally jeffrey scott right. and then he he tried several different names and wizard actually calls that out in the early issues when when the book is being solicited they're like this guy changes his name a lot but he was just trying to find something that worked that wouldn't get him confused with other people in the 
industry that already had similar names. Mm -hmm. So overall, Michael, the question we always have when we're reviewing a comic or looking at it for the first time, like if you had gotten this issue, would do you think you would have come back and said, oh, maybe I'll pick up the next one next month? Or is there not quite enough here for you? No, I would have definitely at least gone to issue two, three, and four to see where this first arc was going to go to, mostly because I really like the art. And I think it's very interesting. It's sort of dynamic. Uh, the character design is pretty good. And it just not doesn't look like globs of things on the page when there's fighting. There's actually like different stuff happening. And even the way the panels are sort of laid out on, on the action pages, they almost interact with each other in a way at times. Yeah. It's just kind of cool. I, I like that. And even outside, they kind of break the fourth wall. There is a specific moment where Roxy free falls. She levitates Grudge. She drops him down. And when he crashes down on the ground with a whoop, it actually cracks the corner of the page. So it's outside the panel. There's all these cracks. Like he actually broke the book. So there's just they do a lot of creative little fun things like that uh, throughout the series. So yeah, it's fantastic. Just the, the creativity that was involved. It's cool. It's one of those things where I, I could see what they were going for. And, you know, it is X-Men adjacent and all that. But I think it would be kind of fun. And this is this is sort of the type of book that is ripe for this time period in, in comics, you know? Yeah, it's it's very much MTV. It's like the real world in comic book form with some superpowers thrown in. And I think it very much is of its era. While you were gone, Michael, we actually had, you know, another super fan uh, like myself, William Bruce West on. And the one thing he mentioned is we kind of came to the conclusion it is a book that hasn't worked after the fact because it is so of its era. Like, that's why it worked, because it just grabbed that moment and everybody's like oh that's what i'm seeing you know on mtv or in the movies or whatever and now it seems a little dated and the characters attitudes maybe haven't aged a hundred percent as well as they could have i would be interested to see if jim lee were to reimagine this and sort of bring it back in a more updated way but who knows most well, of that'll never the happen. problem is it's been done and like even like gail simone and chris claremont tried to reimagine it like they got the person who you know made the x-men what they were and it still just didn't catch with anybody so it's very hard now one book though that i will tell you about that is not on any top 10 list even though j scott campbell is a part of this top 10 list in this issue because jed 13 had been on the list mostly at the number one spot for an entire year in wizard magazine they're just like we can't deny it they even made fun of it in the first few issues but the retailers just told them everybody is asking for this book everybody wants this book but because it was so popular this group called express publications this guy bill mouse who did the classic x farce parody book he did a parody comic called skin 13 <laughs> and i had to get a copy just to see how silly he could make it he renamed the characters there's fur child and grungy and burnt out and free for all plus pain maker you know like these are all his names you know so it's basically a bad magazine version of the miniseries so it kind of points out some of the stupid stuff in there <laughs> and like how like oh j scott campbell creatively covering up nudity and shadows and you know, like the characters will call it out directly so yeah the cover is just all of them naked having
having fallen on each other. It's a parody of the Zero Issue cover of Jed 13. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty silly, but I thought it was spot on with the points it decided to poke some fun at. Yeah, that's pretty hilarious. <laughs> All right, but Michael, I'm curious if you've heard about this reading through comics, because School's In, the next article here, goes in depth on the history of the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art. Are you aware of the Kubert School? Of course, absolutely. Because Kubert, you know, for those who don't know, he was a golden age comic book artist who worked on Hawkman and Sergeant Rock and eventually founded this school in 1976 as a way to teach young artists the ins and outs of creating comic books, since he said he had to learn on the job while working for Will Eisner, who created the Spirit, when he was 12 years old. Now, of the three-year curriculum, Kubert says, quote, we want to teach people to be flexible, to have professional acumen that will enable them to apply their skills to any number of areas, from comics to advertising to book illustration. And the thing he says, though, is that after running the school for 20 years, now they have to convince people not to apply. He's like, we get like 500 to 600 applications a year, and we don't have the capacity to handle that many students. And especially in this era, right, during the comic book boom, where everybody's like, well, you make a million dollars selling comics. I want to be a comic book artist. Michael, do you know anybody like that got into making comics or tried to make a, a career out of it? Yeah, I, I work with somebody that's a comic book artist. Oh. She's worked on a bunch of Wonder Woman's titles recently and, and a couple other fairly popular DC titles. And she's a professor at the college that I work at. Her name is Sarah Woolley, and she is an artist and an illustrator and an and inker. A lot of times she does a lot of work with Marvel, and she's for, very good friends with a lot of big-time creators and she goes to all the comic conventions now and tours at San Diego and Emerald City and you name it. She goes wow, all over that's there. great. Yeah, she's really cool, really talented, amazing artist. I think Joe took some course through the Kubrick school as well. Oh, your buddy Joe, who's been on the show. Okay. Yeah, I think he did. Well, and what's interesting is at this time, obviously, Joe Kubert mentions that most people think that he might be Andy and Adam's son because he's so old. They don't know who he is. They only know Andy Kubert and Adam Kubert. Uh, because they're drawn the X-Men books and other top books at Marvel. But the funny thing is, they work out of the school, because why not? Your dad has this huge space with all these supplies, right? Yeah. And they actually graduated themselves, even though he didn't expect that they would ever do it, because they had jobs doing other types of illustration, and then they ultimately just decided to get into comics. And sometimes, because they're in the vicinity, they get called away from their assignments to substitute teach. <laughs> Get substitute taught by a real comics professional. That's pretty good. Dad needs us to go to work again. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> now, other notable alumni from the school include Steve Bissett and Rick Veitch, who worked with Alan Moore on Swamp Thing, you know, that huge celebrated run. Tom Mandrake, who had worked on the critically acclaimed The Spectre, and even Bart Sears, who ran the Brutes of Babes column at Wizard for many years, among many other accomplishments at DC, Valiant, and Image. So I just thought that was interesting. I mean, there's probably a lot of you out there listening, maybe you tried to go to the Kubert school maybe you got one of those rejection letters we don't have space or you know somebody who did get in so I'd be curious to hear from you guys about that another area that we're probably not super proficient in is this issue marks the debut of the manga scene or manga scene column don't screw it up it's manga don't <laughs> get it wrong oh boy you don't want to make those people mad <laughs> but Leah Hernandez she actually was their resident manga officiant 
Coronado, and she was spotlighting Ghost in the Shell, which recently had a theatrical re-release this year, Michael. I don't know if you went to any movies, and I saw trailers ahead of other movies I saw that said, yeah, come and watch Ghost in the Shell. But of course, Wizard will eventually publish Anime Invasion, Anime Insider, for many years, a very popular magazine for them, but without the involvement of Hernandez, because she has a falling out with the magazine after a few months, according to an interview I read online, but we have had Anime Insider editor Rob Bricken on the Wizard Files, and maybe we'll get Leah on for an interview as well at some point, just to find out what happened. What wasn't working with your communication there? (laughs) Uh, Do you have a favorite manga title? I've never read a manga in my life. There it is. (laughs) Never never read one. I I had a thing for a second. I'm like, have I? No. Nothing. 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 Of, like, anime, though, I really liked Cowboy Bebop back in the day. I know that was... I've always heard great things, and I've never checked it out. I gotta take a look. I'm nervous for the, the live-action TV show, because the, the animated series was so good. It was really interesting and beautiful. Next up here, I mentioned it in the intro, Birthquake is yet another in-depth interview with the head honchos at Valiant Comics. You can always count on Valiant Comics to fill out five or six pages in Wizard every couple of months. But, of course, they are now owned by a claim. And so, Birthquake is an event that is signifying the fact that they are trying to reinvent what they're doing. Valiant is now stealing all of DC's top talent. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So they've got Dan Jurgen who was doing Superman, Rod Mars from Green Lantern, John Ostrander from Inspector, Mike Manley and Norm Brayfogle from Batman, as well as Jackson Geis, Bart Sears, Rags Morales, among others. So they are bringing them all in to revitalize their recently reduced number of titles. The question is, well, why? Why are they doing that? Well, Valiant polled their readers who said, A, there are too many books that are interconnected, it's hard to keep up with it all, and B, the books feature art in a, quote, house style that really wasn't very exciting. <laughs> and uh, you flipped through a few Valiant books, uh, Deathmate in particular, Michael, so I'm sure you can attest to that. Yeah, you know, Valiant back then wasn't that good, but I've read some stuff when it came back in the early to mid-2000s-ish, and there was some pretty cool stuff then, and again, it, it doesn't catch fire, like, it's just one of those companies that just has a hard time getting an audience, I think. Yeah, well, and, you know, they have some good ideas, and the one I always see promoted these days on Twitter over and over again is Shadow Man. Like, that's the one that comes up in my feed over and over again. People share the latest issue of Shadow Man and all this stuff. I'm like, okay. But what they're promising here is that now the coloring will be more bombastic, and the art will be very specific to each title, because much like the only time they ever looked different was when Joe Casada did Ninjack, they're letting the artist kind of give the book a signature look. Now, John Hart's from Valiant says of the industry, quote, there has never been a point where there were this many titles out. Something like 800. (laughs) So the market is still saturated. But they're saying just after four years of existence, they needed to find a way to stand out. But the other part of the strategy, Michael, they say, is to release two issues a month. They're going to have two artists on each book, so they kind of produce the issues concurrently in an alternating basis, right? Which is so annoying, and a a lot of titles do that now, because when when both detectives comics and and action comics wanted to get to the thousand mark they were doing the bi-weekly thing and you know one issue would look great the next issue would look meh. 
Yeah. And, and like, if you were to capture that in a trade, it's going to look ugly because you're going to go from like 18, 20 pages of good art and not so good and back and forth and back. Yeah, and it's forth. like you get a fill-in issue every other issue. Yeah. And the thing is, they say, well, DC has had a Superman comic coming out each week every month and that that was the model but the thing is those were dedicated teams on right. each of those books you, you know they were mixing comics, it up you had superman you had man uh, of steel man of steel and adventures and... of superman right exactly and so the other funny thing about this as we close on this particular topic is they talked to norm brayfogle about his you know decision to draw bloodshot now for valiant he says quote to be honest i wasn't really familiar with the character at all <laughs> which tells us clearly he, what he was familiar with was the dollar size. Yeah, a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Paycheck sounds good. Cool. Thanks. Now, cutting back, the next article here is an interview with veteran comics writer Chuck Dixon, who at this point had been a pro for about a decade and known for how prolific he was in his work because he was writing for Marvel, DC Image, and other independents. So what is the first project, Michael, that comes to mind when you hear the name Chuck Dixon? Batman. Man. just associated immediately right yeah without even thinking about it, it was yeah Batman. for me it's robin like i just i go to robin i'm like chuck dixon the guy who wrote robin now he says that he wrote his own comics as a kid but he had no friends who were artists so he never had a way to really make good comics you know but then he as he got to be a young adult he did a few indie books in the 80s and then he got his break writing savage sword of conan for marvel with larry hama and then he moved over to mark specter moon knight who the interviewer then suggests you know must have been a great primer for later writing batman but then chuck dixon says quote moon knight would have to stand on a chair to kiss batman's butt moon knight <laughs> is a great costume with no character in it wow boom don't tell it to oscar isaac who just exactly did an entire series from moon knight oh boy now dixon says he actually campaigned to write the punisher at marvel and then ended up writing all three punisher titles because quote he's just a blast to write he's the guy every guy would be if there were no women in the world they'd live in a quonset hut and spend all day cleaning guns and hiding their emotions from each other is that, is that what you do michael there were no women sure sure <laughs> sounds great yeah i don't think so oh boy dixon also offers this controversial take on frank castle quote he's a criminal and he has a criminal's mind so michael given steven's statement last episode it sounds like he would probably agree with that yeah i think so you know of course like i mentioned dixon wrote the robin miniseries and the ongoing which meant a lot to all three of us on this show but he was given the job because he wrote 50 issues of Airboy boy at eclipse comics and they said he knew how to write young characters so daddy o'neill's like you take this robin thing but he says he writes Tim Drake as, quote, the first Robin who thinks that Batman will someday take the costume back. So basically, he's a little uh, neurotic. He's got a little bit of anxiety there. He feels like Tim doesn't necessarily feel like he measures up. And he's just doing his best all the time. Unfortunately, he's always sort of been that way. And, and I get it. I mean, there's even been arcs in Detective where he becomes Batman from the future. And he almost becomes, in a way, like a human brother eye sort of a thing. Oh. Not like that he becomes a cyborg, but like, you know, justice must be served. And like he goes a little bit manic on it. Very dedicated. Now, Dixon also got the job of creating Bane from Batman editor Denny O'Neill because he... 
he was the most skeptical about creating a brand new villain, which meant he would be the most meticulous in making him interesting. Also, Dixon wrote Green Arrow after a brief stint on Catwoman, plus Team 7 and Profit at Image. It just seemed like the guy could not stop working. And of course, he would go on to many more iconic stories after 1995. So we actually talked on The Wizard Files to Scott Beatty, and he worked with Chuck Dixon on some very monumental, you know, Nightwing and Batgirl Year One and Robin Year One, you know, so he did a lot of that stuff. Yes. Now, here's a character, Michael, I'm curious to get your take on, because Hero of the Beach is an interview with Peter David and editor Kevin Dooley about the reaction to their reboot of Aquaman, where, you know, he got long hair, he got a beard, he got a harpoon hand after piranhas chewed it off, because that's how things happen. Of course. So David says, quote, I think it's pretty amusing to hear readers say Peter David made Aquaman grim and gritty. Then he goes on to cite all the terrible tragedies that other writers prior to his run heaped upon the character of Arthur Curry. He was like, I'm not the one who broke him apart from his wife. I'm not the one that did this, you know? (laughs) And regarding the backlash against the new look from certain fans, he says, coming out with an Aquaman story and getting any kind of reaction is something that ultimately has to be considered positive. (laughs) Did you have any connection to Aquaman in the 90s? I've always loved Aquaman. As a kid, like the action figure was probably my favorite action figure. I did have quite a few issues of Aquaman when he would team up with Superman back in that time and he had oh. the hook hand. I think when I really got annoyed with it was when one hand became water-based. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> all right, the hook was one thing. The water-based hand, I don't know about that. Well, David mentions that it is going to be an evolution of what that hand does, but he also expresses his frustration that the harpoon hand is being demonized by critics as a hook hand he says i worked very hard not to make it like captain hook and then he jokingly clarifies quote screw him a harpoon is cool a hook is stupid (laughs) (laughs) and then a little more diplomatic kevin dooley the editor clarifies that it's quote a symbol of his dual heritage it reflects man's inhumanity to sea creatures and ultimately is used to protect mankind too oh that's very heady i gotta look into to it. Dooley also reveals that they've only gotten one negative letter about the new costume, which I really find hard to believe. I find that very hard to believe. But he says, quote, and that guy wanted us to return to the blue camouflage suit from the 1986 Aquaman miniseries. Which is now <laughs> going to be in the new movie. Yeah, that is, so there you go. You got your wish, guy. <laughs> Hey there, geeks! We're just taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor this holiday season, Fun.com. And stay tuned, because you're going to learn how you can get 20% off at Fun.com. But why Fun.com? Well, they have everything you need for the pop culture lover in your life, but of course, they have a wide selection of superhero and comic book-based gifts as well. Let me just tell you some of the stuff that I was looking up and was super impressed by. First of all, have you ever wanted to have a fully decked out Batman 1989 bedroom? Well, right now, you can get a three-piece comforter set and a rug to go on the ground. Man, living in your own little bat cave every morning. How about uh, something for your furry pal? A Venom squeaker toy for dog. Let Eddie Brock get slobbered on for once. Looking to get a little bit more high class? How about the DC Comics Star Labs desktop stationery set? Yep, you could write some official memos direct from Star Labs. If you've got a Wonder Woman in your life, why not hook her up with a single brew coffee maker branded with the Wonder Woman symbol and a seven quart Wonder 
Wonder Woman slow cooker. You add a little bit extra fun to the kitchen with a Batman logo two-slice toaster. It'll toast the bat signal right onto your toast. But hey, if you want to get some Marvel in your morning, how about a 7-inch Black Panther waffle maker? Yep, get that Black Panther logo right on your waffle for that crunchy delight. Now, I'll tell you what I think I'm going to invest in myself is a set of Power Rangers Geeky Tiki Cups. They look like they're carved out of wood and colored in the style of each ranger. But of course, they've got Funko Pop figures, all sorts of t-shirts, and of course, those exclusive Christmas sweaters with logos of your favorite comic book heroes and villains? How do you get in on the action? Well, all you gotta do is click on the link in our show notes and it'll take you direct to the website where it'll pop up and tell you your 20% discount is now activated and you will get 20% off your order from fun.com. The best part is, if you have a little extra cash hanging around after the holidays, you wanna get a little something for yourself? Well, this offer is good through January 7th, 2022. So be sure to do your shopping this holiday season at fun.com. And now back to the show. Now, finally, Michael, we're checking in with Palmer's Picks this episode, which we don't normally get into the indie comic scene. But this particular installment, we have Tom Palmer Jr. highlighting a book we've actually heard of, at least I've heard of, Scud the Disposable Assassin by Rob Schraub. What do you know about Scud the Disposable Assassin? What you just said. (laughs) Really? Yeah, nothing. Look it up right now. Look it up and tell me if you recognize the character design, at least, because I feel like it's it was inescapable during this period of the 90s. Scud, the... It comes up on Google search, okay. Anything? No, nothing. Nothing! Nothing. Wow! That is fascinating to me. I, I don't know why you're surprised. I don't know why you're Because he had a video game. You know, he had, like, action figures. At its core, it's very fun. It's, it's about a robot assassin who you can get from a vending machine that you can program to kill someone. But it will self-destruct once it kills the program target. But this scud is sentient, and so it just cripples the target, and it's this multi-tentacled mouth monster named... Jeff. And so Scud just takes more hit jobs so he can pay to keep the creature alive and secure. And it's just like wacky action. It's very John Woo. It's very, you know, like, it's, it's just got a lot of that influence in it. And even like there's this spy that he falls in love with. Her name is Susudio. Huh? Funny story about that. I'm going to go see Phil Collins at the Garden in December. Hey! And he has said publicly, of all the songs he's ever written, he hates Susudio the most. <laughs> <laughs> well, he must not have been reading Scud. That's too bad. Uh, but I have to tell you, Michael, I mean, does this get you excited? It involves futuristic mobsters, werewolves, and a Satan-worshipping Benjamin Franklin. Huh? No. <laughs> Well, if not the content, okay, and I will tell you, I actually bought the giant hardcover collected edition about a decade ago. I have since sold it, but I read through the whole thing on a plane flight to New Jersey one year, and man, it was unforgettable. It's so much fun. But the behind the scenes might be more interesting to you, because Dan Harmon, you know, who had gone to create Arrested Development and Community mm-hmm. and Rick and Morty, among other projects, was a co-writer on some of these issues. He's friends with Rob Schraub, and the the two of them also famously created the infamous Jack Black, Owen Wilson TV pilot, Heat Vision and Jack. 
Have you heard of this? That rings a tiny bell. Probably heard it mentioned online somewhere. It does sound familiar. So they were very creative guys. They loved comics. You know, Scud the Disposable Assassin, the one fun fact I'll share with you, how fun it is, I don't know, but basically he wrote a whole bunch of issues because he would, he would write them and he would draw them. And then he had a breakup with a girlfriend and then he was depressed for years. So it had like this, this ending that really took a long time for him to come up with the final few issues. But then it was this like wonderful love story because he had finally found you know the love of his life who he married and so you know scud is falling in love and those final issues like it's it's very nice like it gets depressing and then it has this happy ending so it's very personal to rob schraub but they were there making tv and maybe someday we'll get that community movie so michael why don't you take us into heroes in motion There are rumors that some creator uh, teamed up with Tom Cruise, of course he did, of course he did, to produce a movie called Power of the Mark. Extreme Studios is teasing that meetings have taken place, but officially states we don't want to confirm or deny anything at this point. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Oh my god. Give me a break. And regarding the Dooms 4 movie that was supposed to be produced by Steven Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment states, we have nothing to give out on this project at the time. Okay, great. No kidding. So apparently, there's nothing to see here, but Wizard took the time to type it out anyway. (laughs) So, yeah, cool. Okay. A sequel to The Crow is rumored to be in development. But in addition to no director or cast news, there's also no script. The official statement from the production company is, it hasn't been ruled out, and it hasn't been decided one way or the other. (laughs) The film does eventually get made, but at this point, Wizard is reporting on, yet again, nothing. Like, like. What? This is something that if Twitter existed, it would be like, this is what the company said, (laughs) period, for 140 characters, post, great, goodbye, moving on. Instead, we put it in print and spent a million dollars in printing costs, so good. All right, a script for a live-action Incredible Hole film produced by Gail Ann Hurd has been completed that is based on the comics as opposed to the TV series and is in active development at Universal, but no director, cast, or special effects teams have been attached. Of course, this is the version of the movie that does not get made, but there are some cool pictures of the Hulk animatronic body that was built for it which can be found online. And what's funny about this is Universal still owns some of the rights to the Hulk, and it's why we haven't gotten a new solo Hulk movie yep. in a while. So, next. Faust, the violent indie comic by former Wizard columnist David Quinn, is in development by Stuart Gordon, who directed the Reanimator films, but they can't get producers to finance the story due to its content. Believe it or not, this movie actually gets made in a direct-to-video format many years later. Oh yes, I still need to track down a copy. I've been saying that, but someday. Do you really need to? Like, (laughs) like, there are wants and there are needs in life. Is a 
Faust direct-to-video VHS, something that you really, truly need. How about this? If any of our listeners out there want to gift me a copy, I'm open to it. Nobody has this. This is next to the Indiana Jones Ark of the Covenant somewhere in, in some archive. It's reported that production on the Phantom movie, which at this time was to be directed by Joe Dante, who made the Gremlin films, has been delayed. Since the $40 million budget has not yet been secured. Doesn't that seem so small? $40 million is all they needed. Did you see that movie? <laughs> they probably spend about 20 to make it and use 20 on the marketing, in my opinion. There you go. Slam evil. And I like the character. I Billy Zane looked great in the character, but movie's not great. It's true. Though Billy Zane is attached as the star, Dante does not ultimately direct this movie that taught us how to slam evil in 1996. Instead, is helmed by Simon Windsor, who made Lonesome Dove and was eventually responsible for the Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles movie. Oh, I think my dad's the only one that saw that movie. Is that the third one? That's the third one. I actually have a copy on VHS behind me, but I have never dared to put it in my VCR. I don't want to ruin the legacy. I love the first two so much. Oh, I love the the first two are great, man. I still make the joke, that's not a knife, this is a knife. (laughs) I love that line. It's so good. So fantastic. Only tangentially related to comics is the report that Scott Bakula, a.k.a. Quantum Leap, is starring in Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions, a movie which was heavily promoted in the back of comic books the month of its release. I remember the constant, like, there was an onslaught of this Lord of Illusions movie. Look out for Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions coming to a theater near you. The two hands that had eyes superimposed on them. And yeah, Yeah. like just that ad was everywhere. It was like that and Lawnmower Man were were like usually promoted. Yeah. All right. Well, it's no illusion. It's the hype coming your way. Yes, it's time for Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Jim Lee announces his plans to produce a full-length Gen 13 direct-to-video animated movie. It's budgeted at $2 million and directed by Kevin Altieri, who worked on Batman the Animated Series and the ALF Animated Series. Quote, This just seems like the next logical step for Wildstorm, according to Jim Lee. Uh, Unfortunately, this is the beginning of many, many years of reports on this doomed film, which is eventually completed, but never officially released and only seen in bootleg form by fans at conventions and now on YouTube. Uh, And Jim Lee never has had another adaptation of his creations in live action animation. It was Wildcats and then this Gen 13 and then he got out of the game. <laughs> really? Interesting. Yeah. Now, Todd's ego column this month is about McFarland's favorite artist teams in comic books. He's talking about penciler and inker combos. Mm-hmm. So he is not concerned with the writers at all. 
Like, he mentions no writers. He has no respect. He's like, it's always about the artist. So he cites Jack Kirby and Joe Sinnott on the Fantastic Four, you know, the early issues, John Byrne and Terry Austin on X-Men, John Romita Jr. and Bob Layton on Iron Man, The Hulk by Sal Buscema and Ernie Chan, Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin, there he is again, drawing Batman in Detective Comics, and he finishes up with Gene Colan and Tom Palmer on Tomb of Dracula. And yes, Tom Palmer is the father of Tom Palmer Jr., who writes Palmer's picks for Wizard. And Todd mentions that he feels like Captain America and Superman don't have a definitive look from an artist, citing the brief periods that John Byrne drew the characters as the highlights, but he just feels like there's no definitive artist. But I was like, is that just because there have been so many Superman artists over the years? But Todd is obviously speaking mostly about comics from when he was a fan, and he's not talking about his contemporaries. Of this time, it's funny that he doesn't mention Jim Lee and Scott Williams. Their work on X-Men is like the big thing, and everybody says, oh yeah, you know, like that's a team. You know, you know what's funny though? We've made a lot of past comments about, remember Jay Lee who was popping up a lot? Yeah. So he's made sort of a little bit of a resurgence at DC. Oh. And, and they even released an action figure line based on Jay Lee's art. Wow, they're still giving him that push after all these years. All right, well, let's see who's getting the push this issue. Get to our tally. <laughs> Adam, king of the transitions, man. Let me tell you. <laughs> holy cow. Jim Lee gets five mentions. Todd McFarlane, six mentions. That brings our total to Jim Lee, 260 mentions. Todd McFarlane, 268. He is holding on to that lead, Michael. So if we hit, if we, if we hit 500, though, if we hit, are, are you going to call it quits at 500 if we get there? No, I mean, that that's just the, the first celebration is what I feel like. <laughs> But speaking of a celebration, Michael, it's time to take us into... Azrael's Action Figure Fury. I wonder if we should change Azrael, because Azrael's kind of gone at this point. I oh, wonder. well, we could think about it. Yeah, we could come up with another A character. Who we do? Who's an I a mean, another long-forgotten DC character, Aztec, the ultimate man, Aztec's Action Figure Fury. <laughs> I don't know. The Atom? Adam's action figure fury. They're just gonna think I'm talking about myself. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to think. I'll have to think about it. Give us a suggestion out there, geeks. We want to hear it. Yeah, get on it, nerds. <laughs> Do some work. <laughs> <laughs> Open your clickety clackety boxes and start typing. Oh my goodness. Oh, here we go. The Ultraverse is finally getting the long-rumored toy line from Galoob that will coincide with the release of the Ultra Force cartoon series in 1995. A prime figure is shown in this issue, and those arms are, to say... Beefy would be an understatement. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is all put in motion prior to the Marvel Comics buyout of Malibu Comics. Yeah, because if it was Marvel doing this, it would have been Toy Biz that made the figures, but Malibu had this deal with Galoob long before. So, you know, it takes a while. You got to tool the figures. You got to send them to, you know, the factories to get made. So this is just kind of, oh, yeah, it's going to happen. But Marvel really doesn't have much to do with it. And the fact, the only interesting thing about the Ultra Force cartoon series that I think is that the gal who voiced Jubilee on the X-Men cartoon, she also voices the young character on the Ultra Force uh, cartoon series. So just a little bit of crossover there from the voice actors. 
A list of upcoming Marvel figures from Toy Biz is provided, including characters like a black costume Spider-Man, Force Work style U.S. agent, a Hulkbuster Iron Man, and something called the Dragon's Assortment, which will include Fing Fang Foom, Silver Dragon, and Golden Dragon, or Gold Dragon. And so I was trying to figure this out. I was like, everybody knows Fin Fang Foom. He's the most famous dragon. We were denied Fin Fang Foom in Shang-Chi, Legend of the, the Ten Rings. But do you know Silver Dragon or Gold Dragon? Does that ring a bell at all? No. I feel like, did they just literally paint a dragon silver and paint a dragon gold? They're like, yeah, these famous characters, kids. You know them, don't you? They're shiny. Hilarious. Finally, toy specialist Sean Oni, a recent guest on The Wizard Files, explains how to remove price tags from your action figure card backs in reaction to many letters from readers, which he suggests use lighter fluid. Okay, wouldn't that, <laughs> wouldn't that get the thing wet, though? And Well, you would think, right? Large, bold letters include the instructions, Do not light it. And warning, <laughs> always read all directions and warnings on the lighter fluid packages. Three exclamation points on that one. We've got a suggestion to help avoid any legal trouble. Don't put that in print! <laughs> just seems like a bad idea, right? I guess goof-off didn't exist back then. Yeah. <laughs> On our last mini-episode, we had a fun conversation with some Star Trek fans, and it looks like the Wizard crew still has that final frontier on the brain. So let's take this transporter to SETI Alpha Fun with Turok's Top Ten. The top ten things the ship of the Star Trek Voyager will find on the other side of the galaxy. Number ten. All the same stories the Star Trek The Next Generation did. <laughs> Number nine. Space Family Robinson. From Lost in Space? Guess so. I, I love Lost in Space. Oh, the horror. Any incarnation. The, the original one, that bad movie with Matt LeBlanc. And the Netflix one. I love them all. You'll take it all. Okay. <laughs> For some reason, I love it. Number eight, the limits of politically correct casting. I think that that is somehow because they had a female captain for the first time. They had, you know, well, and actually, now that I think about it, the cast of Star Trek has always been diverse. So what are they talking about? Yeah, Deep Space Nine was pretty diverse, too. Yeah, but I mean, it's from the beginning. You had Sulu, you had Uhura, you know, you had a Russian. You had, like, yeah, they've always they've tried their best to be diverse. Huh, that's weird. Number seven, Space Ghost. Oh, Space Ghost, coast to coast. Okay, number six. Another spider clone. <laughs> oh, couldn't go one issue without dumping on old Ben Riley. Number five, one of them really cool Stargate things. If only, right? Get some Egyptian-themed aliens coming through, Adam. Oh, Stargate. The original movie was so cool. Oh, I love that movie. Number four, a ship that doesn't look like a garden trowel. 
garden trowel is like triangular. I didn't think it was too triangular. It's kind of, it almost looks like uh, when Captain America had the pointy shield as opposed to the round shield, like the top of it. Like, well, yeah, that, now that I'm thinking about it, I guess a trowel, I think, does have more of a rounded edge. I, I was thinking of one of those things you used to, uh, you know, the old timey cartoons where they show them slapping the cement on for the bricks, you yes. know, <laughs> a spade or something. I don't know. Number three, Space 1999. It's only four years away, you know. <laughs> I've never seen that show. I've always heard about Space 1999, but I have no frame of reference for that. Neither have I. Never seen it. Number two, hopefully, The Borg. That'll make for a short season. Are they just saying the Borg would kill the Voyager crew because they're not as cool as the Next Generation crew? I guess so. All right, and number one, A Cure for Pon Far. Uh-oh. Do you know what Pod Far is, Michael? Do you really think I know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be one of the weird pop culture things. You're like, well, I know because of this, this weird guy in line at a convention once. But Pod Far is this weird situation of basically going into heat for Vulcans. So there's an episode where Spock goes into heat because he's going through Pod Far and he wants to kill everybody. You know, he wants a mate. It's, it's a crazy episode. So <laughs> one of the famous Star Trek original series episodes but there you go guys yes we have come to the end of this issue the end of this episode michael is there any business you feel needs to be discussed before we get out of here I thank all the listeners for listening because they got to hear me for two hours and I couldn't do it. <laughs> all right, gang. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We had a lot of fun getting together. The original two here, we miss Steven and hopefully we'll be talking to him soon. But we do have some great guests lined up. A lot of people have reached out recently saying they want to talk 90s comics. So we're going to get them booked. We're going to bring them on. Of course, you can always check out what we are doing on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter at wizards underscore comics on instagram we know you guys are listening and you love the show we appreciate your feedback regularly on social media in the meantime also guys go on over to apple podcasts leave us a five-star review tell us what you love about the show more importantly tell other people what you love about the show and especially those at your local comic shop spread the word i'm gonna mention to you guys i'm going out to california my home base here shortly and i'm gonna be visiting my comic shop that i grew up going to gonna wear all my wizards gear and see if i get a reaction see if they're listening that'll be the the true <laughs> test of how far the show has gone at this point so we will find out soon enough but if in the meantime, keep your books bagged and boarded. Okie dokie. <laughs> Okie dokie, all right. <laughs> That that should have been our sign off. In the meantime, okie dokie, artichoke. <laughs> this has been a presentation of the Retro Network.